observing the Chambers family, you really give thanks to God and you understand how God visits faithfulness through several generations. Sometimes the family that follows uh, takes winding paths and there are detours and potholes along the way. But the resolute love of God um, draws us to him. And the sacred deposit that's made in the bank account of a life of godly parents by those godly parents, uh, the spirit of God causes the child never to forget. They must draw from it, but it is there. It is such a blessing to watch the progression, how God has used faithfulness and music to his glory through the Chambers family. And it was good to get to revisit and connect with a little bit of that legacy today. The scripture I want us to look at this morning is Philippians chapter 3. The third chapter of Philippians, and I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to that passage. And we do have Bibles on the table there. Uh, like the one that the edition that uh, Jerry read from, if you want to grab one, they're there for you to read. And our theme really is the theme of that song. The last two Sundays we've been looking at uh, crossing the border into a new year and navigating this new year that is before us, which is also a new decade. By the way, it's great to have some of our family here today. They're here to celebrate Marilyn's birthday tomorrow. So it's great to have our, our baby boy, Eric, and uh, his wife, Heather, and Jordan and Christopher with us. <clears throat> As we think about that theme of navigation, I, uh, I'm reminded of a parable spun by Gordon McDonald, one of my mentors through, through his great books, in the book, The Life God Blesses. And in that book, Gordon McDonald spins the parable of a man who built a boat. Now, this is not a modern day Noah story because the reasons for building the boat did not come from any instructions from the mouth of God. The motivation of the man to build this boat was that he wanted to build the finest looking craft in the yacht club of which he was a member. That was his motivation. And he had studied long and hard and prepared for the process of realizing his dream. He would uh, he would attend the Sunday afternoon regattas that his club sponsored. And he saw what it was that captured the oohs and the ahs and the eyes of, of those who were attending. And he he read their promotional brochures and saw the pictures. He knew the kind of vessel he wanted to build. Consequently, having gone to school on what captured the attention of the crowd, he invested heavily in things like complex rigging. Brightly colored flags, teakwood decks, burnished brass fittings, and a countless array of creature comforts in the cabin. In other words, he spent a great deal of time, attention, effort, and money upon the externals, the things that could be seen by the eye and admired, that which was above the waterline. Now, how about things such as Oh, the keel. But whoever admires the bottom of a boat was sort of his litany. 
He said, my goodness, why waste time and effort and money on stuff that will never be seen? It will be beneath the surface of the water. And so he proceeded with his plan. And and as his his boat building project came to near its conclusion, he had much evidence that he had invested wisely. He heard constant comments of uh, that complimented him on the beauty of his boat. Someone he overheard saying actually that this was the finest looking vessel the yacht club had ever seen in its entire history. He even heard whispers that there was going to be a campaign to make him Commodore. And so the man went about the last finishing touches of his boat. The club members were excited. He was actually approached. He said, would you please set a firm launch date? Because we want to include it in our uh, feature events for the coming uh, boating season. And so the date was set. He was able to finish the project. The last thing he did was to name his pride and joy. And there it was painted in, in gold letters on the side of the boat. The name he had chosen for his dream. He dubbed the dream the persona. Because truly he had invested a great, great deal of his personality and his identity in this project. So the day comes and several of his fellow club members have, have in the excitement gotten their boats ready and they're going to participate in the maiden voyage with him. But he is right front and center at the vanguard with everybody else to either side. And it is a festive day. And champagne is broken across the bow of the persona. And with great fanfare and the cheers of the crowd, he proudly leads his boat out and the flotilla out of the breakwater and toward the open sea. And can you imagine how excited he was on that day with the fulfillment of his dreams and, and the, the affirmation that he was getting from the crowd? He, had his, he was bedecked in his new Commodore's clothes, you know, just in case they did want to nominate him as Commodore of the club. And you can almost imagine the scene from the Titanic, you know, the one where Leonardo DiCaprio stands on the bow, thrusts out his chest and says, what? I'm the king of the world. And that's how he felt. He was the captain of his faith, the master of his domain. Hey, he was the sultan of the sea. It just came to him like a poetic inspiration. That's what he was. And that's what adulation and, and, and a string of successes will do to you. He was on a high. And so now, as the crowd is just a blip on the horizon, takes one last look at them, turns to face the sea of which he is the self-proclaimed sultan. And he sees off on the horizon, which had been totally sunlit, a few white puffy clouds. Well, for those of you who have been on sea voyages, you know that rather quickly, alarmingly quickly, White puffy clouds can become menacing, dark thunderheads. And he was watching the clouds morph before his very eyes into something quite threatening. And that gentle breeze with which uh, the day had begun had become a rather stiff wind. And now that was morphing into full gale force winds. Raindrops were spattering against the windshield through which he had been surveying his domain. And now the rain had mutated into a vicious squall. And suddenly the sea of which he had been the self-proclaimed sultan was a, a boiling cauldron of liquid fury. The man thought to himself, well, perhaps I'm not the sultan of the sea. 
doing a rather quick downsizing of his self-appraisal as he struggled at the helm to, to maintain control. And, and he furtively looked to, to his side to, to see how his friends were faring, and there were no friends. They knew what a sudden storm looked like, and they had turned back and returned to port. And I, I kind of wonder if, if they attempted to call out to him and warn him of the approaching storm, and he was just too self-preoccupied to notice Or as soon as the storm clouds appeared, they just turned tail and went back to port. But it really doesn't matter at this point because the man is alone in his battle with an angry sea. And how were the externals faring in which he had invested so much and and the the multitudes had enjoyed so greatly? Well, the the rigging is is in disarray. The the colorful sails and flags are in Shreds and tatters and and the teakwood deck is flooded and the burnished brass fittings are splattered with seaweed. And in at that moment, the largest wave he had ever seen. Washes over the boat, engulfs the persona and it capsizes and it begins to sink. And at that moment. He thought of the keel. Because, you see, if he had built an adequate keel, if there was the proper um, distribution of ballast and there was enough weight below the surface, when the capsizing had occurred, it would have been possible the boat could have righted itself and he would have been saved. And he remembered his words. Whoever looks at the bottom of a boat. But now he was. But it was too late. The boat sank. He went down with it and he was lost at sea. Later on, when the wreckage and the remains of the persona were towed back in to the harbor, there was a crowd of the boat club members who gathered on the the shore and, and gawked and clucked their tongues and would say to one another, well, look, that boat has an inadequate keel. Any. Worthy sailor would know that you should never put out to sea without an adequate keel. Others in the boat club noticed that none of these things were said back in the day when they were admiring his project, his showy project. And so what did it matter now? And so ends the parable of the, the foolish boat builder. That's a story that's been recycled through generations. A foolish man built a boat. A foolish man built a house and the rains came. A foolish man built a life. So why revisit that parable this morning? Because indeed we do face the question, what will we do with a year that is new, that has been given to us? A page has been turned. There's a fresh, clean, white opportunity. How will you navigate the new year. Now, navigate is a good word. Because you see, I maintain that life is less like a road trip and it's more like an ocean voyage. You know, when you you plan to, to drive 
cross-country even, a long distance. You can take out a map, and there's certain highways that can be identified, and, and you can map the route, and, and, and you know the roads you're going to take on the journey. And yes, a lot of unexpected things can happen. There can be potholes. There can be detours. There can be construction, and there can be fender benders and smash-ups. But you can map the journey precisely. Not so with a sea voyage, because the sea is changing all the time, and the highways, if you will, are never the same. So the destination can be constant, but every trip is unique. And that's more the way I think it is with our lives. We have to be careful with categories and formulas and, and uh, trying to put everything neatly in a box and tie it up because, and say, here it is. Here's the formula for the new year, because every life looks different. But there are some basic life principles that, if followed, will help us navigate successfully the new year. And one of those principles is found in that parable, and it is this. There must be more weight beneath the surface than there is above the surface. If you are to navigate well, the shifting seas and the sudden storms of life. Now that tells us that life is really all about the primacy of cultivating a well-tended soul and a well-ordered heart. Above all else, the life well-lived is about one's relationship to God. And this is where I want you to look at Philippians chapter 3, because someone who had lived a very eventful life gives us a little bit of his own life bio, and he addresses these themes. The Apostle Paul he says, finally, my, my, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul often minced words, if you notice. He uh, was rather subtle. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything is lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already been made perfectly mature. 
but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now here Paul gives you his life passion. And he tells you that life that is lived above the waterline, which puts confidence in externals, is no life at all. He says, I can tell you a little bit about that from personal experience. We learned in one of our Mike's classes this morning that there are two ways to approach life lived above the waterline, which captures the attention of the world system. One of those ways is the way of autonomy. You know, people who follow this way. I take control of my life and I do it my way. Paul knew a little bit about that. If you read his biography very carefully and, and study his letters, you realize that here was a man with, with a, an intense, driven, type A leadership personality. Paul was born with many in, in, advantages. He, he had a, a university training. In fact, he, he was, uh, was referred to as a very educated and brilliant man. He grew up in, as a citizen of Rome and Roman citizenship. You know, you hear people tell stories of what it means to become an American citizen. But Roman citizenship literally opened doors all over the empire. And he was writing to people in a city called Philippi, which was a, was a, was a military garrison. And because they had been faithful in the Roman wars, they had been, had been dubbed a Roman colony with all of its special advantages. And many people who were retired military who lived in that city had paid great sums of money to purchase Roman citizenship. It was so valuable in that culture. And Paul says, I had it for free. It was my legacy. It opened doors all over the empire. Now, there's another way to approach the life lived above the waterline, and that is the way of moral righteousness. And this is the way that Paul chose. He says, I was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were those who were the strictest about their doctrinal beliefs and their moral practices. They dotted every I and crossed every T, and Paul says, I was the strictest of the bunch. History tells us he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the leading rabbi of his day. He had risen to a position of, of, of respect and authority as a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the high ruling court of all matters religious and moral in Palestine. And what had it gotten him? Here we find a man who in all of his moral rectitude and his religiosity was self-righteous, mean-spirited, and it could stoop to the point where he was an accomplice in the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And we learn how dark the human heart can really be when life is lived on the basis of the superficial and the external. Even our moral righteousness, even our religion, if it does not touch the heart, if it does not penetrate the soul, the interior castle of who we really are, is dark. And so the Apostle Paul comes to say, I've told you my story. I hope you will listen and learn. I had to count everything, everything. 
my legacy, my heritage, my training, my righteousness, my leadership ability. I had to count it all but rubbish that I might gain the one thing that matters above all else, that I might find the greatest treasure, Jesus himself, the pearl of great price. And Paul says, I now have a new destination. I have an all consuming passion. And my passion is what? My passion is to know Christ. I mean, to really know him in the power that brought him back from death, in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, in being made conformable to his death by dying to self-will and living to his will. In fact, the, the Amplified Bible is so cool here. And the Amplified New Testament or Bible is not a Bible you read uh, just uh, quickly as a narrative. But you, if you want to capture the, the flavor and the meanings of the, the original language, it is so descriptive. And here in the original language is literally what Philippians 3.10 says. Paul says, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. Perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may in that same way come to know the power that outflows from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers. And that I may come to share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in the spirit of his likeness unto his death and the hope of the resurrection that I have in him. Paul says my consuming passion is that I may know Christ and that I may become like him. Now, what is your passion as we break the seal on a new decade? The year 2010 has arrived. What are you really passionate about? What is the hunger of your heart? Philippians 2, the chapter that gives birth to Philippians 3 quotes one of the the earliest of Christian worship songs, what we call the kenosis. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was by very nature, God laid aside his perks as God and knelt and served to the point of going to a cross that you and I might come to know God. And, And Philippians 2 goes on to say, now, therefore, every knee should bow Every tongue should confess what heaven already knows, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is boss. He is king. And then we are introduced there in one of the most amazing of all realities, that the holy God of the universe not just demands our obedience because he can, But he loves us and he resolutely pursues us to draw us into an intimate relationship with him, which once you know it. Causes the desire of your heart to be willingly to follow and to obey him. So how passionate are you about knowing Christ and becoming like him this year? And if that is your passion. What are the practices that need to be primary as you live your life in 2010? Paul gives us some counsel here. 
First thing he says ought to be very encouraging. He says, I haven't already arrived. He says, I'm on a journey and I haven't become fully mature. And if the writer of, of, of over half the New Testament has it, that can encourage us because we know that we're on a journey also. And we haven't fully arrived, but be encouraged. He says, I haven't arrived, but here's what I do. Here's your spiritual growth plan for 2010. Strive for the prize and reach for the goal. The prize and the goal of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, in an intimate way that will transform your life. Now, how do we go about doing that? Those those verbs, by the way, are, are generally in the New Testament used of, of strenuous training of athletes that they may run the race and win the prize. Paul uses this theme elsewhere in in the New Testament. What is the training we need to enter into that we, we may know Christ and become like him? Well, well, Paul gives us the, the fundamental step of the spirit control life. He says, I Fix my focus on the prize. And what is the prize? The prize is Christ himself. Paul fixes his focus on Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, seeing that you're surrounded by those great host of witnesses who've run the race before you, they're now cheering you on as you run yours. Lay aside every, every weight and the sin that so easily besets you and run with endurance the race that is set before you. How? steadfastly gazes the author and the finisher of our faith. Again, fix your focus on Jesus. Colossians chapter 3. Paul again writes, he says, Since you've been risen with Christ, set your attention on things above, not on things below, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, which is the place of all authority and power. Set your focus on Christ. The sweet singer of the psalm, Psalm 16, 8, puts it this way. He says, I keep the Lord ever before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Fix your focus on Christ. And finally, in Romans chapter 12, we read in view of God's mercy. Are you filling your mind with a vision of a merciful God? Then present your bodies and renew your minds. Choose to fix your focus upon Christ. Corrie ten Boom, a great Dutch Christian who, who endured the Holocaust and saw her, her sister die by her side in, in one of Hitler's um, horrible camps. And yet lived a life of surpassing beauty. Said a lot of it is about focus. You can focus on your circumstances and you will get distressed. You can focus on yourself. And you will eventually get depressed. You can focus on your God. And you will come to be at rest. The fundamental practice entering our year of the spirit control life. Is to choose to fix our focus on Christ. It's what the, the ancients called the musing of the mind upon God. I like to think about it as I, I try to discipline my, my own walk with God. That I lean my elbows on the windows of heaven. And I gaze into the glory and the grandeur and the greatness and the grace of our awesome God. As a, a regular practice of my life. 
So how do you go about doing that? I, I just want to share a couple of suggestions with you. And this is moving to the conclusion of our time this morning. This past fall, I did like a lot of you, I think, did. And that you, you took your spiritual Christian life assessment profile. And in that process, I identified it that my primary spiritual goal for the coming year would be the goal of joy. As I, I took my assessment, I felt that one of the needs in my life was that I tended to focus too much on circumstances and all my feelings about those circumstances, which drew me away from that settled serenity and that contentment, that that whole life sense of well-being that is biblical peace and joy. And so as I crafted my spiritual growth plan, which I shared with my small group, that's just a reminder for them to get ready to share theirs. <clears throat> a little advertisement. <laughs> You're welcome, Jeff. You're welcome. He's not in my group. <clears throat> First of all, I, I, two fundamental practices that I wrote down. You know, a, a spiritual growth plan needs to be specific and it needs to be simple, but it needs to be challenging. And so my my first step is that that I am seeking to build in my life and have been for several months now a, a, a renewal of commitment to start my day with a brief moment of surrender and of adoration to God. And to help me to be intentional about this, I I have uh, taken the NIV worship Bible and taken some of the prayers and and scriptures out of there and have have put them near me in my Bible and my journal. And so every day I will I will seek to read one of those until it becomes it has become where a practice where I don't read this so often I'm, I'm pursuing my own. But sometimes a discipline is good to have a guide to go by. And so most recently I read this prayer. Father, as I begin my day in your hand are the untold riches of heaven and earth. In your hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. In your hand are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. In your hand are my life, my times, and all my ways. All blessing, provision, all protection, all comfort, all joy, all peace, and all righteousness are in your hand. Let me stay hidden in you, Father, and I will like nothing. Amen. And after a moment of, 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 of adoration, I then pray a prayer of surrender. And I've got that typed out and near me in my Bible, in my journal. And uh, the most recent one I prayed was, Lord, I confess that apart from you, I can do nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I present my body to you today as an act of worship. And I'm asking you, Lord, will you fill me today in a fresh way with your spirit? Now, having taken that moment intentionally to lift my focus to God in, in surrender and in adoration, then I am seeking to pursue the reflective reading of Scripture, a chapter or two a day. And I don't bat a thousand, but I am batting 750 as I've launched my plan in the past season. And uh, it helps for me to do this with, with something pleasant. So I, I, I read my Bible reflectively with my journal here. And my cranberry walnut bagel right here. It just helps. And I seek to pursue a simple acrostic. You know, I, I take very seriously Psalm 1, the very beginning words of the psalm. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scorners. 
But his delight is upon the law of the Lord and on his law. He meditates day and night and he is like a tree planted by streams of water. Who yields its fruit in due season and whose leaf does not wither. I want to live near the springs of living water when I open up the scriptures and I read reflectively, deliberately from them. Not so much trying to get through them, but to allow them to get through me. Then I find that the waters begin to flow and I understand what Jesus said about rivers of living water. And so I sit down and I read about a chapter to a day. I usually try to stay in one book when I'm there and see it through. And I use a little acrostic soap, S-O-A-P. I got that from Wayne Codero in his book, The, the Divine Mentor, but also from Ephesians 5, where we are told that Jesus loves the church and seeks to present it to himself glorious through the washing of water by the word. And so I want the, the, the word of God to wash through me each day. And so I, I take a chapter and I begin with S, which is scripture. And I ask the spirit of God to tap me on the shoulder. Give me a verse that he just causes me to stop there. And it jumps up at me in capital letters. And I will write that one verse out longhand without abbreviation as a way of beginning to reflect on it and etch it upon my mind so that the spirit may call it to mind during the challenges, those shifting seas and sudden storms of life. And then the O is for observation, and that's where it's just the facts, man, just the facts. What is this scripture passage saying? Don't try to spiritualize or bring in other people's opinion. First of all, what is this the word saying? And then the A is application. As Jesus said, he who hears my word and puts it into practice is like a wise man who builds upon the rock. As James says, don't only just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. So the application, ask the spirit of God who inspired the word to let me know how I need to apply it in my life. How will my life be different this week? Because I read this passage. Is there a prayer to pray, a sin to confess, a promise to embrace, an action to take, a truth upon which to build my life this week? And then the P is prayer. I just write out in longhand a one sentence prayer in which I pray back to God what he has been telling me in his scripture this day. I am praying the scriptures and again, hiding them in my heart. And then I give it a title at the top of the page in my little three dollar journal. I've got fifteen dollar journals, but I'm always afraid if I use them, then they're gone. So I've never gotten around to use them. I just keep (laughs) buying three dollar journals and and filling them up. This is my approach, my spiritual growth plan, the way that I am raising my sails to catch the winds of the spirit in 2010. First of all, softening my heart and being humble and teachable and pliable, because you can make something ugly out of Bible study, just like anything else, unless your heart is surrendered and humble before God. And then I spend time regularly in his word. Now You say, I'd like to do that. 2010, but you just don't know my schedule. Life is so hectic. Things are coming at me so fast. The margins are squeezed out of my life. Well, I would ask you, how passionate are you about Christ? Do you really believe 
that discipleship to Jesus involves the whole of life? Or have you trivialized and marginalized Jesus over to the inconsequential margins of your life? Does he matter in your workplace? Does he matter in your family? Does he matter in the traffic patterns of your daily life? And if he is your passion, you can't afford not to take the opportunity of a new year to set a spiritual growth plan that is centered in surrender to God and in the reflective reading of his word. Several years ago, Marilyn and I went on a retreat outside Washington, D.C. In fact, Eric got to go into the inner city. He didn't go on the retreat uh, on that trip. And then we all saw Washington, D.C. together. But on that retreat, we met the lieutenant governor of the state of Florida and his wife and got to have some conversation with them. And they were they were great people. But I asked him about Reuben Askew, who had been governor of Florida, because I had heard for so long about the depth of, of devotion of this man who followed Christ. And he spoke with great respect of him. And I remember Reuben Askew, as a Christ follower, got serious about his faith in, in, at the university when he was in law school. And so he began a regular practice of reading his Bible reflectively every day, about 20 minutes a day. He graduated, went into law practice, and he said, okay, I am so busy. What am I going to do about my Bible study? And he came to feel, well, my life is to follow Christ. Jesus makes a difference in how I practice law. He better. We would agree with that. So I am so busy and I have so many responsibilities that I can't afford not to spend 30 minutes a day in the reflective reading of the word of God. Then he was elected the legislator and he said, you know, I'm so busy now that I cannot afford to spend less than 40 minutes a day in reading my Bible. And finally, when he was elected governor of Florida, he said, my life has become so busy and filled responsibilities that I have to spend an hour a day on my knees before God in his word. So the question is not how busy are you? It is what is your passion? And where is Jesus in the picture? Can you bow with me for a moment of reflection and allow the spirit of God. Who is a spirit of worship who gives us his word to speak his word and the message of worship today into your life. And I would ask you the question of the song. What will you do? With the year you've been given. You can make some opportunities. One is to intentionally lift your focus from the character of your circumstances to the character of your God. And I, I just can't imagine how your plan this year cannot include an intentional return to the reflective reading of Scripture as a regular practice. If I can help you, if you would like any spiritual growth resources, even some of the resources I mentioned this morning, if you will just give me your email and ask me to send it to you, um, be sure it gets to me. I will send those to you. I will certainly pray for you. But let's launch the journey together and then be intentional Christian community where we can share our aspirations with one another, pray for one another, encourage one another on the journey. This is the first day of a new decade. What will you say to God about what you want to do with your life? And is your passion to know Christ?
Father, I pray that you will speak into our hearts the word you have for each of us on our unique journey as we navigate this new year. Lord, draw near to us and and resolutely draw us into the dimensions of your inexhaustible love and share with us how we need to raise the sails to catch the winds of your spirit as we seek to know you in an ever more intimate way and to become more like your son. For I ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.